Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist and Gallup senior scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Brantingham, Presbyterian minister and campus minister at University of Illinois. And I'm Michael Lambert, producer. And we welcome you to our podcast, Objective Religion, produced in partnership with Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. This is our podcast where we look at the intersection of religion and politics, in particular, election 2020. And Nate, there's no shortage of news, as we would anticipate. I mean, I think this is more news than in previous news cycles, but by the time you get to the first week of October in any presidential cycle, there's a lot of news going on. But boy, uh, as I just mentioned, probably more now than we've seen in previous elections. Oh, what a week. I, you just, after your, just like event after event after event after event, you can barely keep up with it. Yeah, the important events, I think, that we're going to discuss in just a few moments uh, in its relationship to religion would be, one, President Trump getting coronavirus. Uh, Even as we're recording this, he is in Walter Reed Hospital at the Naval Medical Center there in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, The other event was the fallout from the debate, the first debate that he and uh, uh, Vice President Joe Biden had. The other event was a news story from the New York Times. They got hold of President Trump's tax reports. Yeah, uh, and did a series of news uh, stories on that. And the other is the continuing discussion of uh, President Trump's nomination of Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court of the United States after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So that's four big events that are going on even as we speak. And that's a that is a lot. But let's mm-hmm. let's kind of start peeling through some of those and look at where the overlaps are with those in terms of religion. But before we do that. Do we have a quiz this week? Ah, we do, Micah. Are people with children more religious than those without? Very interesting question. Yeah, it relates a little bit to last week's where I was wrong last week, so we'll see how we do this week. All right, just in general, people with religion. And remember, causality can go both ways. Highly religious people Mm -hmm. can have more children. Or people, having had children myself, people with a lot of children may decide they need to be more religious, right? Uh, Need some God in that family. That's right. (laughs) right. (laughs) And and there's always been a relationship between having children and the idea that they need religious training. So there's a lot of implications uh, and kind of cross correlations going on here. And I look forward to discussing this with you near the end of the podcast. But you know, Nate, uh, when we look at that was the week that was covering the news. Most of the news was the kind of things we're going to go into in just a few moments. But Mm -hmm. there was some other news this week. Uh, and a lot of it focused around Joe Biden, uh, who's flush with cash and what he's doing relating to religion. Yeah, making a real big push for the evangelical voters. And I think a lot of people thought, oh, those are lost causes for his campaign. But and, th- and that's that was the prevailing thought back when Hillary Clinton was running. And that might have been one of the things that, that came back to bite her because it just didn't seem like she cared. But Biden is making an attempt, even if these are not gettable, to at least show, hey, I'm I'm here and I'm running and I'm I care about you and really lifting up his strengths with his personal faith and personal character. Yeah, that's what his ads seem to show. Uh, And I think you made a very good point by mentioning Hillary Clinton. I've said in my analysis of election 2016 that one of her problems was she made no or very little overt outreach to highly religious voters. She would talk about her own Methodist faith some, but she didn't really, or her campaign really didn't go after these voters, kind of leaving leaving an open path for 
the Republican candidate, Donald Trump. Biden's not making that mistake this time. As you said, he's going very much after these voters. He has an evangelical outreach coordinator for his campaign, Josh Dixon, who is an evangelical leader. Um, and I saw him quoted in an article this week saying that the uh, Biden campaign has a seven-figure ad buy with two 30-second television spots that is running on evangelical and Catholic TV programs. They're very targeted, going right after those voters. Uh, as you say, uh, the ad's uh, talking about uh, Biden's personal Catholic faith. And I hear religious radio as well, so really broadening the, the, the way that they're coming at them, trying to hit them from all channels. Another headline was uh, about evangelical leaders supporting Biden, uh, which is interesting. These are, of course, more mainstream evangelical leaders, but uh, they put together a group uh, where they are called pro-life evangelicals for Biden. How's that? Because they're directly uh, addressing the issue that's a sensitive one for Biden when it comes to religion. And that is his support for abortion rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these people are saying we are pro-life, but even taking that into account, uh, and we're evangelical, but even taking that into account, we're supporting Biden, which is which is quite interesting for that particular group. So moving away from single issue, like uh, we recognize that this is an important issue to us, but there's other issues on the table, and the the net weight of it falls to Biden. Uh, that's right. I think some of their discussion has to do with uh, we can be pro-life, but uh, abortion is not the only issue when you're talking about life. You know, poverty, inequality, uh, not having adequate health care can result in death. Wars can result in death. Uh, death sure. penalty support can result in death. So there are a lot of ways that uh, political policies can right. really affect life, so to speak, one right. way or the other. And, and abortion is just one of those. And I think that's actually a good move that they're making, which is to focus on not just the birth of the child, but what happens after the child's born. What sort of care are we providing to the young families or other families who are having children who might be at high risk for abortions? If they decide not to, what sort of support is there for them? And that's a, that's a point where I, I think Biden and their camp could really pick up some points on that. Mm-hmm. And there was a headline in the New York Times I wanted to refer to, Trump and Biden court Catholic vote in very different ways. Uh, written by the New York Times uh, religion reporter, um, and kind of reiterating the things we've talked about so much, which is that um, Trump's approach to religion is more transactional, which is, I am enacting policies which should make you want to vote for me. He doesn't talk much about his personal faith. Uh, Biden's the opposite. Right. And and so that's maintaining. They're keeping that line. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's the different, that's what that particular reporter was talking about in terms of uh, different approaches to religious voters. So before we do that deep dive as well, the other question that we like to sometimes talk about early on to set kind of the backdrop for our conversation is where are we at just in general in terms of the polls? And do we have any new data related to religion in the polls yet? Uh, We did. The ABC Washington Post poll, which was done prior to the things we're talking about now, particularly the debate performance and also uh, Trump's getting the virus, it was conducted September 21 to 24, uh, found uh, Biden ahead overall. But their report was that Trump was leading among white evangelical Protestants. uh, Mm -hmm. That's how they define them, likely voters, 75 to 25. And they went back and compared that to their poll at about the same time back in 2016. And Trump was leading uh, Hillary Clinton by about the same margin. Bottom line here is, at least in that one poll, they didn't see any significant diminution in support for Trump among evangelical voters. Well, this is also useful as a as a baseline because it's just before all of this stuff started mm-hmm. happening. So if we can get a new poll out afterwards, we can put it side by side and actually 
get a pretty good idea of measuring what the impact of these events are. There was a new poll of the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, which came out just over the weekend and showed Biden now moving ahead by 14 points overall. So I eagerly looked at the poll. I went into the basic cross-tab findings mm. that they published, but they don't break out uh, evangelical voters. So I wasn't able to determine uh, any movement there. But when Biden has moved ahead by that much of a margin overall, you've got to think that maybe uh, in this more recent poll, there was yeah. a, there was some change, but we don't have uh, data for that. But that poll, by the way, Nate, underscores uh, the big question. Where's the race stand? Well, on the national polling, there's absolutely no question that Biden is ahead at the moment. Uh, that's one poll that would take into account the debate, but not take into account any impact that might come from Trump having gotten the virus, which we'll be talking about in a few moments. Uh, but all indications when you look at national polls, which, by the way, were very accurate in predicting uh, what happened on the national vote back in 2016, you find Biden, if anything, increasing his lead. And when I look at the forecasting models, the one done by the uh, economist, the other done by 538 uh, website, uh, they both now have uh, 80 to 90 percent probability that if the election were held today, Biden would win based on their analysis of the Electoral College. So when we look at the race as a whole, as we speak, uh, we certainly find Biden in the lead. But how often do I have to say this, Nate? Things can change. (laughs) (laughs) Things could change. Well, they did change. They just might not have changed in the way that the Trump campaign was hoping, but they definitely changed. That's something I have to reiterate whenever I make a speech about polling, that that doesn't, because polls change and the actual election results are different on November 3rd than they are now, doesn't mean that the polling is not good. It simply means that the underlying population parameters, the people themselves, can change. And all polling's doing is measuring where the race stands at the time the interviews were done. So as of now, end of September, I would say uh, we find Biden uh, significantly in the lead. Well, that's see, and the other thing that's interesting about that is that now certain states are opening polling. It used to be that that was just measuring ahead of the election, but that's mm-hmm. not actually the case now. That's actually measuring people as they're voting in some states. My state, I mean, that's Illinois, right. is opening for early voting, and mm-hmm. so it's. I think that's one of the things that's really going to change over time as this becomes more and more common. Is really going to change how elections in general are run. It used to be the yeah, election uh, was uh, on the th- November 3rd, but now the election's over on November 3rd. It's it's on right now. It's starting now. Yeah. So so any events that are occurring through the month of October are too late right. for people that have already cast their ballot. Right. By the way, people ask me this. When pollsters now call up people, they say, have you already voted? Mm. And if so, who did you vote for? So they're capturing that uh, in the polling. But you're right. The whole landscape is changing, which is one of the discussions that's come up surrounding the presidential debates. Right. Uh, the latest, the last debate that's planned, we don't know whether that's going to be held or not, is October 22nd. And, and by October 22nd, uh, a lot of people will not have voted, but obviously there are going to be some people, a significant number of people who've already voted by the time that debate, uh, if it occurs, takes place. Well, let's move to our deep dive. Uh, there's a lot going on. We talked about that early on the show. So let's start picking up some of those topics. A big one, I think, everyone's mind, Trump got coronavirus. What's the impact there? Well, in terms of religion, I think. Right. In terms of religion. I was, right. I, yeah. I, I was struck by one headline that you and I were talking about it before we started recording here. Uh, the headline was, quote, Trump was sent from mm. God. 
And this was from a uh, Politico report where the reporter went around the uh, Walter Reed Medical Center and interviewed a lot of these individuals who were there um, in support of Trump. You know, a lot of people have masked themselves going up and down this, uh, the sidewalks there with, with signs saying, uh, we're praying for Don, Donald Trump. And one of the people they interviewed said Trump was sent from God. That's why I'm here praying for him. But at least the individuals that this reporter interviewed, a lots of them, talked about prayer. Yeah, very interesting. I saw some of those pictures too. A lot of people not wearing masks. So it seems like that hasn't, at least, I know that's just a snapshot, but I'm wondering when that needle and if that needle is going to move on that topic as a result of the president getting the virus as well. But that's off the religious point. But it, it's it's something I'm very curious about. Yeah, that's interesting in and of itself. But clearly these people who are uh, there think that uh, intercessory prayer makes a difference, right? They're right. there praying for Donald Trump, his supporters. Oh. One elderly Vietnamese woman I, I liked in this report said, quote, I'm here to pray for Trump. Uh, and, and others that the reporter interviewed kept saying the same thing. Uh, in addition to saying that he was sent from God, uh, they said, I was, here's another quote, I felt compelled to come and show my support for President Trump and pray over him and wish him a speedy recovery. So a lot of his supporters turning to prayer now uh, as he battles the virus. Yeah, and there's a lot of people, I'm going to say on both sides, that are praying for the president's recovery. Some more, maybe more mm -hmm. ingenuous than others, but there's a lot of prayer going around for that right now. Includes Biden. Including Biden, right. And I think that was very genuine mm -hmm. based on his personal faith. I mean, he pulled all his aggressive attack ads. His, his attack ads are pulled out of just courtesy for the president and what the president's going through right now. I think that speaks, I do think that's more than just political gamemanship. I think that that does speak to Biden's character as we talked about the difference between the mm -hmm. two in character. I think that does highlight that. Yeah. I saw an article by the Religious News Service where they kind of did a roundup of religious leaders and, and they just went quote after quote after quote from religious leaders across the spectrum who say we're praying for Donald Trump at this point. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that, Nate? One of the impacts of this situation now where President Trump has gotten the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is that it has brought out uh, a lot of prayer on all sides of the spectrum uh, for his recovery. Uh, what does that tell us? It shows religion, people still believe, presumably, that religion can make a difference, particularly prayer. Yeah, it's a fallback still. For some of us, I guess it's not a fallback. It's the first step. It's the first thing you always do when you when you hit um, a crisis is, well, let's pray. Let's ask mm -hmm. for intercession. We saw that after all the major crises, there's a spike in prayer, whether that leads to a spike mm -hmm. in religiosity and church attendance. Uh, maybe not so much always, but there is always a spike in prayer. Yeah, you know, in the book that I published about religion a while back, I went back and looked at the quotes from those individuals who were in the airplane that took off from LaGuardia, remember, and had to land in the Hudson yeah. uh, with uh, the famous pilot. What was his name? Uh, Sullenberger. I may have mispronounced his name, but that was the pilot's name. But when they interviewed all these people, and they all survived, you know, they landed in the Hudson and boats came out and got them, and it was a miracle, really. But when they interviewed people in those few minutes between when they, the engines conked out and they landed, uh, glided, so to speak, into the Hudson River, it, it, just full of quotes of prayer. Everybody in that little time period when they saw their life passing before their eyes went back to prayer. Mm -hmm. So it just underscores, and I guess this is something that you've studied yourself, Nate, that in time of crisis, uh, what they used to say? There are no atheists in Foxhole. That's right. Uh, one other point, um, speaking of religion, Father John Jenkins, that name strike a bell with you? 
Oh, that uh, Father John yeah, Jenkins, Notre Dame. Yeah, he he had uh, president of Notre Dame University. He had come for the Amy Barrett ceremony. Yeah, and there are pictures of him without a mask, you know, uh, shaking hands and hugging and doing all these types of things. Well, he got the virus overall. Um, so that's another kind of relationship between uh, religion, I guess, and and what we're seeing now, because a lot of religious leaders or religiously oriented people had come to that hearing in particular for Amy Barrett, and it certainly was not held with the kind of social distancing and mandatory wearing of masks that a lot of uh, medical right. officials would say should. Yeah, have those chairs were awfully close together. Mm-hmm. So. Let's go on and briefly touch on something that we had touched on previously way back when this thing first started in our podcast back last spring, and that is the impact of, of COVID on religion in general. Thoughts on that? Whether or not it's changed or shifted things? And will change permanently. I oh, guess I, that's a yeah, question a I, lot of people I think ask. it will permanently mm-hmm. change. Even the churches that are really, I don't want to say thriving, but really managing the, the crisis well— are saying to themselves, well, we can't go back to the way things were 100%, that we have to embrace a new normal and a new future. And there's a lot of people I know very resistant to that. But there are some upsides to the way that churches are engaging with their communities now. And if we can keep those upsides while bringing back the things that worked before and bring those things together, we can have a stronger church at the end of this than we did going into that. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like to see that. I don't want to see us just go back to the way things were because fundamentally the way things were wasn't working. We watched the numbers dropping Mm -hmm. and dropping. It just doesn't work. So do you mean like technology, I, uh, you know, in the future, uh, post-pandemic, which is a great word to use. I hope we see yeah. post-pandemic sooner rather than Agreed. later. Uh, you mean churches will embrace technology more or they'll just uh, change the way that they operate more generally? It is both. I think saying just technology is a little overstatement because there's also a way that churches really excel at providing care. Um, but now they're having to provide care with understanding nuance of situation and churches that are doing well with that and saying, well, we want to provide care, but we can't provide care in X, Y, and Z ways because it would endanger the people we're trying to care for. And the churches who are doing that are getting really creative about how they show care. And that mm-hmm. really does highlight one of the strengths churches have, which is caring for the community. And so in a way, the more that gets constrained by the virus and more creative churches are getting and still applying that care to their communities, the more I think it really does highlight what church is for many people and why church is so powerful. Mm -hmm. What about this headline? Those are very good thoughts, uh, Nate. There was a headline, an article written by Terry Mattingly, uh, COVID-19 will kill many churches. And I think if you read through the article, he's saying that a lot of churches were kind of on the edge anyhow, and maybe they're not adopting the kind of things that you were just talking about in terms of innovation and so forth. Younger people and other people have gotten used to not coming to church, and when they were down to, you know, 40 people in church on Sunday anyhow, and they're closed now, uh, there may be a question he's arguing about whether or not some of these churches are ever going to open the doors again. Uh, yeah, but I don't think you can say that COVID-19 killed the churches. I think COVID-19, if anything, has accelerated directions churches where we're going churches that were on the upswing are going up faster this might just my take we'll be interesting to see data down the road but churches that mm-hmm. were were struggling might be struggling faster as well i think it accelerated the time scale but i don't think that it did too much changing directions of that many churches uh-huh. I have some data. I look very carefully at our month-by-month data from Gallup, where we asked people first, what is your religious identity? So I looked at the percentage of those who were nuns, 
And then we ask a question every poll, uh, how often do you attend religious services? And I looked at that month by month, and I've seen no change, interestingly. Now, of course, people aren't going to church as much physically, obviously, but this question says, in general, how often do you attend church? And there's really been no significant change uh, all the way up through September right. uh, from last January uh, in terms of people's reporting church attendance, which to me is a good indicator of religiosity. And also, I don't see any increase in nuns, uh, people, N-O-N-E-S, that is, people who don't have an official religious identity. Uh, people are keeping, it looks like, their same religious identity. So I don't know what that means about the kind of thing we've been talking about, churches per se, but at least in terms of personal religiosity, I don't see signs in our data so far that we've had yeah. either a drop or an increase uh, overall as we've gone through this pandemic. I would expect a, a season of mergers more than just straight closures. Is I think, I think that people are gravitating to churches that are doing it well and churches that aren't might close, but the number of faithful is probably going to remain relatively steady. Mm -hmm. That's what the data show. One interesting point, before my time at Gallup back in the uh, 80s, when AIDS, the AIDS epidemic hit this country, uh, the Gallup pollsters asked Americans, did they think that AIDS was God's punishment mm. for immoral sexual behavior? Interestingly, so whoever was doing the creation of the questions back then must have thought that was a dominant enough meme or thought yeah. out there to ask questions about it. And 43 and 44 percent in a couple of different Gallup polls said, yes, they thought that AIDS was punishment for immoral sexual behavior. Fast forward to today, and I have not heard any discussion or seen any polls where people are talking about, you know, like Noah's flood. Uh, in some ways, and you're the biblical scholar here, that this pandemic uh, is God punishing a sinful America. I don't see polling questions on it, and, and I don't know about you. Have, well, I'll ask you, have you seen much discussion of that kind of approach? No, no. Um, it's it's just too broad, broad sped. And in fact, if anything, it seems to be impacting the age demographic that happens to be more religious. So that would be a pretty difficult argument for people to embrace, I think. The debate. We want to get that in before we have to go here. Yeah, yeah. Let's move yeah. on to the debate. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, that was also, that was big. I, I saw an article saying, is God talk gone from the presidential debates? There wasn't that much talk about no. God in the debates. I kind of thought there would be more than there was. Yes, I, I didn't see much at all. Uh, abortion only came up kind of peripherally, right, when they discussed Amy Barrett. Mm -hmm. But what about the tenor of it? Obviously, the big headlines out of the debate, and this was discussions of the debate before President Trump got the, the virus and was hospitalized, but the big mm -hmm. discussion was uh, how the debate was com uh, was conducted, the comportment of the candidates, particularly Donald Trump during the debate. You know, the name calling, the back and forth, uh, Trump interrupting and, and all of these types of things, certainly not uh, civility. Uh, and certainly not in a uh, kind of religious perspective, uh, one bending over backwards to be kind to one's neighbor, would you say? Uh, so I don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, would there be some religious implications to that? We had an example there on national television of people, rather than being highly religious in terms of compassionate about their neighbors, turning the other cheek, uh, just uh, turning their enemies into enemies and, and continuing to look at them as enemies, particularly, as I say, I think it's fair to say on the part of Donald Trump. Yeah, I saw I saw an article that said complaints on Trump's debate performance highlights a generational divide among white evangelicals. So that might be hitting different age groups differently, and they might just feel like there's different uh, stakes on at play here. Mm -hmm. But 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 it certainly wasn't yeah. uh, from a Christian perspective, right? Which is the dominant religion in America. It certainly wasn't a display yeah. of Christian brotherhood. I know. <laughs> is that fair to say? No. 
No, yeah, it, it, it certainly wasn't. And I think for a lot of people, specifically Trump's refusal to um, to condemn white supremacy on the national stage hit really hard mm-hmm. to a lot of to faith groups. Obviously, of course, a lot of uh, faith groups of people of color, but even among white evangelicals who don't want to be saddled with racism and white supremacy, I think that was a pretty painful moment. Uh, indeed. In fact, the campaign uh, for Joe Biden came out after the debate and said, aha, racism is a religious issue. It's so important that we should consider that a religious issue after the debate. So the Biden campaign was uh, obviously, if, if I can say this more cynically from an election campaign standpoint, was trying to take advantage of Trump's mistakes uh, in not condemning white supremacy. But uh, the interesting thing to me was that they kind of uh, interwove racism as a religious issue. That's what Biden uh, is attempting to do, bring religion into a look at racism. And as a religious person, I would say that is true. That is an accurate statement mm-hmm. anyway. That so religion should be tackling racism. Taxes, another big news event of the past week or two was the New York Times report on Donald Trump's taxes and paying taxes and not paying taxes. Uh, I'm not sure how that uh, interacts with a look at religion and the campaign, but nevertheless, uh, it certainly, for one little small part of it, didn't show that Trump had made huge contributions to religious charities. How's that? No, my understanding is that does not show that. So I think that's something... I, I think there is kind of a, does he put his money where his mouth is? And it seems like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. not. Um, yeah. And that, that might tie in with another article that we saw uh, that's kind of shaking some of evangelicals, which says that Trump has been very disparaging of evangelicals in private. Mm-hmm. And that his private and public statements are quite Yeah, different. that came out in the Atlantic. And then I saw a quote resulting from that, I think, where a believer, a Trump believer said, well, I don't care what he believes. It's what he does that matters. So that's kind of back to the same thing. Uh, a lot of religious yep. supporters, evangelicals in particular, President Trump, have long ago said we're not voting for him because of his personal religiosity. And now even his personal beliefs are now even what he thinks about religious people, right? We're voting for Trump right, because of that. his policies, that he's doing things that are directly uh, in line with what we would want a president to do policy-wise. Which brings us to our fourth and last point, which is policy, which is specifically a lot of people are when they say policy, what they mean is Supreme Court. That's right. Is he putting in place people that we want in the Supreme Court? And um, Amy Barrett seems to be passing all the the tests for being someone that they would want. Mm-hmm. People are very excited on the conservative side about Amy Barrett. Still trying to push that through. We'll see if the Trump's um, condition is going to slow that up at all, but mm-hmm. I don't know that it will. My bottom line on that is uh, he's made his mark. In other words, by nominating Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, he has made his mark for uh, religious Catholics and for evangelicals and others. And whether or not her nomination gets mm-hmm. through the Senate uh, before the election uh, really may not matter as much as the fact that he made the nomination. Yeah, he 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 said this is he reminded people this is why you're voting for me because I'm going to mm-hmm, do this. Absolutely, I'm put people like this. Very yeah. yeah. Well, we're near out of time. We could talk about this news cycle for ages because it's just so much. But I, I think we've done well just kind of hitting some of those issues and talking about from a religious perspective. Uh, so I'm kind of still thinking about that quiz though too, Micah. Are people with children more religious than those without? Well, what would your answer be? What do you think, Nate? 
I'm going to say yes, but I'm not sold on the chicken and the egg, which comes mm-hmm. first. I, I do think there might be a correlation between having children and church attendance, but no. I'm not sure which drives what which. What do you think, Micah? But I was, I was so wrong last <laughs> okay. time. I'm well, really nervous. Great. I feel like there's a trap there, All Frank. Right. It's, it's, it's a good guess. <laughs> Micah? I think that they have more. Well, the answer is there is a difference, right? And what I'm using here, I'm looking at uh, our religiosity index from data from 2018, a couple of years ago, because we have that index in a large-scale tracking project, which combines both church attendance and self-reported importance of religion. And based on those two variables, we come up with a classification of people as highly religious, moderately religious, or not religious, and across all age groups, people with children— uh, are more religious, more likely to be highly religious than people that aren't. Not hugely, but there's a 10-point difference among 18 to 29-year-olds. In other words, if you're 18 to 29 and have children, you're 10 percentage points more likely to be highly religious than uh, those in that age group that don't. Uh, we find about the same thing among 30 to 49s, and that's when people's children are really significant in terms of church attendance and so forth. Uh, 50 to 64, we still find it, and even for 65 pluses, most of the children, of course, are out of the home and are adults by that point, but even among uh, seniors, uh, we find a 12-point difference between people who've ever had children and people who've never had children at, at that age group. So across the board, we find that people constant. with children are, yeah, absolutely, are, are, are more religious. Mm-hmm. You Chicken and egg is a good way of uh, looking at this, Nate. We don't know why. I mean, it could be like Mormons, for example. If you're highly religious, the theology tells you to have more children. Uh, or it could be once you have children, you become more religious. So last week we asked about the number of children. This one is not about the number. It's just whether or not you That's have children right, at all. Children. So it could go both ways. Just let me reiterate that briefly. You're highly religious, therefore you make the decision to have children and so forth. Mm-hmm. Or you have children and decide that you need to become religious, uh, particularly in terms of maybe church attendance, because a lot of people who have children think it's important to take their children to church. But whatever the reasons, and we don't have the time, and I don't have the expertise here, because I've not gone into this in tremendous detail, uh, we don't know why that's the case, but we find a significant difference at every age group in terms of religiosity between those who've had children and those who never have had children. Fascinating. I, that's just, that is fascinating. Well, by the time we get back together again, uh, Nate, we will have had a vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and uh, Kamala Harris. That's scheduled for this week. Uh, and as we're talking here, it's going to be in Salt Lake City. As we're talking here, it's still scheduled, still a go. So we'll see. And that may give us something to talk about because that's going to be a debate between two evangelicals. I'm very excited about that one, not just from the religious. I think it's going to be a really fascinating debate, So I'm and probably held with a little bit more decorum than the last one, so mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll and of course, by, we'll see how it goes. by next week, we'll know a lot more about uh, what's happening with President Trump as well, and, and his, right, uh, as, his uh, situation with uh, COVID-19. Right. And since I can change so much, we say as of this morning, Monday, we don't, we don't have much more, mm-hmm. but by the time that this podcast comes out, it, there already might be new news there. Well, that wraps up this episode. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist, Gallup Senior Scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Brantingham, Presbyterian Minister and Campus Minister. And I'm Michael Lambert. And you've been listening to our podcast, Objective Religion, produced in partnership with Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. We love hearing from our listeners, so please leave us a message at 254 237 3298 
with any comments or questions or send us an email at objectivereligionpodcast at gmail.com. 